host, Leah Sarah-Pierre, and welcome to my podcast, Pierre Med. I'm a Canadian medical student, human rights, global health, and social justice advocate, as well as just an ordinary human being. As of March 24th, 2021, the PMED podcast is an initiative affiliated with the PMED Foundation, an organization started and inspired by the very beginnings of these conversations. PMED's mission is serving humanity, connecting people, stories, and places. It is a platform that gives a voice to the voiceless, an ear to the helpless, and seeks to empower youth, physicians, and leaders far and wide. Why is it that the standard of care at hospitals, the clinic, and in healthcare settings is not the same? Why are some patients subject to discrimination and unfair, inequitable healthcare access? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, listen as I dive into discussion with Nancy Piquet and how she hopes her documentary, Standard of Care, can tackle this very problem. Nancy Piquet is a filmmaker living with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and several comorbidities. She started Standard of Care, a documentary series in response to the bias she faced as a chronically ill young woman and to highlight the experiences of others who face barriers just like her. She created her first feature-length film, a documentary about pediatric cancer in high school. Titled The Golden Truth, it is now streaming live on Amazon Prime. A short film about the Affordable Care Act, Is Healthcare a Human Right?, has been recognized by film festivals across the country in the United States, including the News and Documentary Emmy Awards, where she received the prestigious Mike Wallace Memorial Scholarship for Excellence in Journalism in 2017. So Nancy, why don't you tell me what inspired uh, you to start this documentary series? Why something related to the healthcare field? I started this project based on my personal experience uh, navigating the healthcare system with a chronic illness. Um, and I kind of slowly expanded it to include other identities that aren't necessarily my identity, but definitely impact the level of care that people receive. And since then, I've been able to collaborate with a lot of other disabled creators to kind of tell this story about um, healthcare access and how we can make the system more equitable. Um, I definitely have been thinking about making this film for several years now. Um, I, I've had the idea before COVID. I think COVID maybe gave me a little bit more time to jump into the research and development phase. Um, but uh, have definitely been wanting to do this project for many years now. Standard of care uh, is a term used a lot in the medical and legal world uh, to describe this like baseline of quality of care that patients should receive when dealing with a certain um, like medical issue. So uh, if somebody has a specific diagnosis, there is a standard of care uh, of how that patient should be treated, what steps should be taken, and um, that is kind of supposed to ensure this equitable um, care that we all are kind of hoping 
to address with standard of care, but um, obviously that's not always the case depending on the patient's identity and their circumstances. Um, so we really wanted to kind of highlight that the fact that not everybody is receiving the same standard of care. That's very beautifully put, Nancy, how you described standard of care and how that's going to be the name of the, the document. Why don't you tell me about the team behind the document? Who are they? What roles do they play? Um, how do they inspire you on a day-to-day -day basis? I have made it a priority to really collaborate with other disabled creators on this film to ensure that it's not just my voice, but that this is a collective voice of patients who are speaking out about their um, experiences. Um, so I've been collaborating with a lot of other filmmakers and a lot of other advocates, um, learning about what they feel is the most important issues to address um, about the subject matter and how they'd like to be represented in the film. And yourself, Nancy, what has it been like to live with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and several other comorbidities? Um, you know, uh, it, it's hard. And I, I think that that was a lot of the inspiration for the film was that I was struggling to find access to quality medical care as a young woman, as um, a low income person, as a queer person. I think that, um, you know, I have faced barriers to healthcare, um, some of which are based on those identities. I think that doctors struggle to take young women seriously um, in the medical field sometimes. Uh, I started having symptoms when I was around 12 years old and, you know, uh, by the time I was 14 and I was having, you know, stomach issues, it was automatically assumed to be an eating disorder. Um, I was assumed to be having uh, pain that was for attention or because of stress. And uh, I'm really thankful to have a diagnosis now and to have a team of doctors who trusts me and believes me and is, has my back, but that was not always the case. And it is not always the case for people struggling with this. I hear from people every day about um, how they've had these horrific experiences of not being taken seriously or um, being discriminated against within the healthcare system. So I think it's really important that we kind of start to talk about um, these barriers, because if I hear one more patient tell me that I'm not sure this would have happened to me if I was white or if I was a man or if I had more money, um, it, it's really upsetting. I definitely agree with you, Nancy. These are huge issues that the medical system, the healthcare system needs to address. And the time is now, especially as youth, as people, as individuals such as yourself are speaking out about these issues and it needs to be taken seriously. But who conducts research for elements of the documentary and when is its projected release? Um, so I spent about a year, maybe like a year and a half, um, in the research and development phase. Uh, I've hosted over 40 focus groups uh, with hundreds and hundreds of patients talking about their experiences and how they'd like to be represented and what are the most important factors to consider when speaking on their identities. Um, and I've read so, so many articles and books and patient testimonies um, to kind of prepare myself. And I'm always trying to uh, research more and learn more things uh, that are important to be included in this topic. Uh, 
So we're kind of wrapping up that research phase. I've also had a lot of volunteers um, helping me sift through information and kind of dive into topics uh, that they're interested in and sharing those resources with me. Um, so as we kind of wrap up research and move into the production phase, I hope to shoot for the next um, several months. Documentary films take a long time to shoot, especially when we're following multiple participants. Um, there's pretty good chances we'll end up being a series uh, rather than just one film. So uh, definitely expect to be filming for a while and then of course having some time to edit. And I would be really thrilled if the film was able to come out sometime in 2023. Uh, but I, with COVID and with all the new variants going around, it's really hard to give an exact timeline. Very understandable. I think the focus groups have been an excellent opportunity getting that real personal, real experiences from people, patients, about their journeys and experiences navigating the healthcare system. And I think this documentary standard of care has the potential of really changing the, the system and showing um, disparities, problems, existing issues within the system that maybe health professionals and people within the system were not really aware of. So it, this is an amazing initiative and a, amazing project that you have taken on, Nancy. But I wanted to also ask you, being in the system, being a producer, being a journalist, how would you define quality healthcare? That's a big question. Uh, I think that there's a lot of elements that go into quality healthcare. If we look at it for bare basics, um, there are people who are living in other countries, lower income countries, who don't have access to like clean medical supplies. Um, I read a book, I think it's called Behind the Beautiful Forevers. It's really interesting. It's about um, living in slums in Asia and there was a woman in the book who went to the hospital and the, she got an IV placed but the doctor reused an IV that had been in somebody else because she was poor and I guess couldn't afford a new needle and um, that's not quality healthcare that's an infection risk so like from the very bare basics having access to clean safe water having access to hygiene products having access to medical care. I mean, think about how many, thinking about how many times it takes um, my American nurses to try and get an IV on me and how many IVs we use because we never reuse uh, an, a needle like that. Uh, knowing that we throw hundreds of them away here in the States, there should never be a situation where somebody is um, that strapped for resources that they have to, um, in a hospital that's reusing IVs. So there's that basic level of cleanliness and access to the latest and greatest technology. Um, but then within the healthcare system, I mean, even if you are living in an area where there is um, access to those kinds of things, um, not everybody receives the same level of care. If a patient is not being respected by their providers, if they are being stigmatized because they have a history of addiction or incarceration or they're an immigrant, then that creates this barrier to them receiving the same level of care as somebody who doesn't identify um, as one of those things. If you refuse an ambulance ride because you can't afford it, that's 
and you drive yourself to the hospital, that's not quality care. You shouldn't be driving if, if somebody tells you that you need to be in an ambulance. So um, I think there's a lot of things that go into quality health care, but uh, I guess some of the main ones that we're going to be covering in standard of care is this idea of access to the materials needed to provide um, clean, safe, effective healthcare. And then within that, um, having providers who are respectful, who work with the patient and listen to the patient's wants and needs and apply those whenever possible to the treatment that they're providing. Exactly. And the thing with quality healthcare is that sometimes access does not mean that every person, every patient will receive the same standard that you mentioned. And going back to the case where you highlighted the situation in Asia, that is just a human right violation right there. The fact that this other patient had to take an IV that was already reused, I think that goes against all principles of, of what it means to receive quality health care. Um, but so Nancy, in your focus groups, I've I've seen that you've highlighted or divided them up into different categories. So what healthcare disparities based on say a variety of demographics does the documentary explore? One of the things that we really wanna explore with the standard of care that I don't think it's talked about nearly enough is healthcare for the incarcerated. Um, the US locks up more people than any other country in the world uh, and our prison conditions are just absolutely horrible. Um, correctional institutions are required to provide a basic, you know, standard of care to their inmates, but they also um, often cut corners to save money. Um, the food they serve isn't always adequate to maintain good health. Um, it might not be enough food. Uh, there can be rotting and uh, bug infested food. Um, they don't always have access to like soap and during COVID PPE um, that's not readily available. They face barriers to getting their medication and getting those medications on time. Uh, and there's just not always healthcare providers available mm -hmm. um, with the system. And even if there are, it's really difficult for people to have access to it. Um, a lot of people report being kind of like gaslit by guards, not being allowed um, to go to the doctor and then once they are feeling very violated and feeling like they weren't helpful. Um, only 4% of prisons in the US have a hospice program, but we've sentenced over 200,000 people to die behind bars. So very few of them are getting hospice care. Um, and the vast majority of them are going to eventually be released to the public. And without the proper healthcare in prison, they're going to be released with chronic health issues, um, mental health issues, um, mental health patients make up a large proportion of people who are incarcerated, um, but mental health care in prison is often uh, served in solitary confinement, which uh, has been proven to reshape the brain in detrimental ways. Um, so this one could probably be its own documentary. Um, there's a lot of issues going on with the healthcare system behind bars and that's something that we would like to um, address within standard of care. Um, another group that we're hoping to highlight here is immigrants. So whether or not you're documented, immigrants around the world are subject to lower quality healthcare than native born citizens um, in every country all over. 
Um, in the United States, uh, ICE detention centers face really similar issues to the um, correctional facilities that I mentioned before. And I'm sure you've heard about the recent uh, investigation that found that they were uh, coercively sterilizing women held in these facilities. Um, if you aren't being detained or deported, uh, you might fear seeking healthcare because you're worried about being detained or deported. Um, so undocumented folks might not seek out healthcare when they need it uh, due to those fears. Um, they're way more likely to be affected by COVID-19. Um, and there's other barriers too. Like, of course, if you don't speak the language of your provider, that creates a really difficult barrier to care. And yes, we sometimes have translators, but they're not always available in lower income areas. And when they are, they can't always ensure this solid understanding of medical explanations. They can't sit there and explain something to you or help you with paperwork, social work, these other essential services. Um, they can kind of just do the bare minimum. So there's a lot more that we could be doing to ensure that immigrants have um, access to better healthcare. Um, another huge demographic that we'd like to address is based on income. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of two sides to this as well. Um, for people living in lower income countries, there's a billion people living on less than one US dollar per day. Uh, they are dying at super high rates from diseases that we know how to prevent and cure. They're dying from hunger, poor sanitation, inadequate shelter. Um, they're being highly, highly affected by COVID-19 um, and not being able to get treatment for it. Um, so improving their living conditions would improve their health and their access to healthcare. Um, and then in countries that don't have, a lot of more developed countries have universal healthcare, which guarantees healthcare to all of their citizens. But in countries like the United States, um, the type of insurance or lack thereof will largely determine what kind of care a patient has access to. Um, if you do have insurance, that company is going to limit which providers you can see. Um, they might not cover specialty care, they might not cover behavioral care, experimental or off-label care. Um, they can refuse to pay for basically anything they want that they can deem that not medically necessary. So even if your doctor writes you a prescription and says this is medically necessary, your insurance company might say, no, it's not. Um, they have deductibles and co-pays that are really difficult for people to pay. Um, and just in this for-profit healthcare model, um, the cost of care goes up. And that's why a single ambulance cost can cost hundreds of dollars, even after insurance pays their share. Um, and that's why we have half a million people going bankrupt every year from their medical bills. Um, for working class families and people who are working hourly jobs, they don't have sick time to get off and go see the doctor. Um, and that really ends up affecting your care, not just what you have access to, but once you do have access to somebody and you see a doctor, um, I've heard lots of stories of doctors basing their medical recommendations off of their perceived ability to pay. So patients on state insurance or without insurance might be less likely to refer for this expensive diagnostic procedure or this experimental treatment, um, while those who have better insurance um, might be subject to more tests and treatment because a provider knows that they can pay for it. Um, so when we are, have a healthcare system 
that is focused on profit, um, the disparities are really easy to see. And I think that COVID is a great example of something that's really shed light on those disparities. Um, poor essential workers have been disproportionately infected with the virus. They're more likely to die from it. And if you look at a map of where there are cases, um, you kind of see um, those disparities lit up. And that kind of does lead me to the next topic that we like to cover, which is location um, within higher income countries, uh, low income communities and rural populations don't have access to healthcare. Um, specifically in the US, states that have chosen not to expand Medicare under, or excuse me, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act um, have seen high closures of rural health centers and hospitals um, where the hospital is closing down or uh, severely restricting its services due to um, budgetary issues. Um, and those patients are now without an ER and a lot of them don't have access to transportation or if they do, now their hospital is three hours away. Um, and you see this in other countries as well, um, in countries where there really is only a handful of very qualified hospitals and they're very far away um, from these remote communities. Um, we've made a lot of strides in like creating um, systems that try to keep location from being a barrier like telemedicine, but uh, something that I think a lot of people, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have access to Wi-Fi. Um, and I don't think that people realize that that's not something that everybody has access to, even in a country like the United States or Canada, there's lots of people living without broadband and that makes telehealth inaccessible to them. So um, where you live definitely does um, play a role. Um, even for someone like me who I do have health insurance, I am very privileged in the fact that a lot of the time I am able to receive care pretty close to home, but I'm currently in need of a specialist who um, can address some cervical issues that I'm having with my neck and the only specialists who can kind of address this are all on the east coast and I live on the west coast so I'm going to have to come up with the money to travel all the way across the country to see a doctor so um, location is is definitely um, a factor and can sometimes be a barrier um, we talk about age um, older individuals are tended to be talked down to, doctors kind of just assume that they don't understand things. Um, and on the flip side of that, uh, younger patients as well might not be taken as seriously, um, might be dismissed as growing pains, as attention seeking. Um, I think that this problem is especially relevant with uh, female teenagers or um, gender non-conforming teenagers. Um, these are populations where doctors tend to jump to that attention-seeking explanation um, very quickly. Um, and that uh, is can definitely lead to diagnostic delays and uh, issues with that. Um, we, we talk about mental health care. Um, there is a term that's called diagnostic overshadowing that describes the process of doctors 
seeing a patient who has, let's say, a psychological diagnosis in their chart, um, let's say you're bipolar and you go to the doctor and you say, my stomach hurts, uh, they see that in your chart and they uh, may ask you a lot of questions about your mental health and write off um, your physical symptoms as related to your mental health without really doing um, too much investigation. Of course, there are situations where mental health can impact physical health. Um, there are medications that can cause side effects. There are many reasons why that might be a factor, but um, a lot of patients feel like they've been just truly dismissed and not uh, investigated. And I've talked to several people who that has created really, really poor health outcomes um, when they have a diagnostic delay. Um, and then that kind of goes into if you have mental health and you need mental health care because healthcare needs to encompass your physical and mental health. Um, we really believe that mental health should be um, equally important and prioritized. However, uh, it's far less likely that people have access to mental health care. So in the developed world and higher income countries, um, about 40 to 70% of people who need mental health care don't actually receive treatment. And then in lower income countries, that number can reach up to like 90%. Um, so there's a huge, huge group of people who don't have access to mental health care. And that's due to a couple of things. It's due to cost. Um, insurance plans don't cover behavioral health care well enough. There's not enough providers and that creates a lot of financial barriers to treatment. Um, stigma is a really big one. Um, this is kind of varies among individuals and cultures, but um, there is a lot of stigma when it comes to seeking out mental health care um, in, in, in cultures where conformity is really valued. Um, psychiatric conditions might be seen as shameful or, you know, a poor reflection on one's family if you're seeking out mental health care. And then in more individualistic cultures, um, patients might view their mental suffering as, you know, um, a personal weakness that they want to deal with themselves and not uh, go see a therapist for. Um, and there's a lot of other stigmas that kind of go along with those things. Um, there's also a huge lack of resources. Um, at least a third of the country, or at least a third of the world is living in a country that allocates less than 1% of their health budget to mental health. And at least 20% of countries don't even have any common antidepressants available in their primary care settings. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, there's a huge lack of resources. There's a huge lack of providers um, that make it really difficult for people to access um, mental health care. And then um, the stigma is not just with the patients, it's also within the healthcare system. Um, and especially for people who are struggling with a substance abuse disorder, um, they're some of the most stigmatized conditions. And even after they've recovered from their addiction, a lot of times patients report that they've been treated, you know, like a drug seeker if they are in an emergency room or a clinic. Um, and that uh, creates a lot of problems for them, creates um, reluctance to go to the doctor. And once they're there, um, for quality care that um, history. You've so wonderfully explained each of these uh, disparities that exist within 
the healthcare system and how they're each interconnected and correlated. So there's also a really long history of racism in medicine. Um, I, I'm sure you might have heard that in the late 19th century, doctors practiced their surgical techniques on enslaved Black women, often, you know, without anesthetic, um, often multiple, multiple times. Um, and then in the 1930s, um, the U.S. recruited hundreds of Black syphilis patients to participate in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Um, they promised them free medical care, but in reality, they received placebos and diagnostic procedures and researchers kind of observed the effects of their untreated disease for about four decades, uh, even though we had developed drugs that would have helped those patients uh, within that time frame. Um, if you've heard of HeLa cells, um, Henrietta Lacks was a black cancer patient whose cells were harvested for medical research without her consent, uh, her family, uh, has spoken out about this. There's a great book about it if you're interested in learning more about um, that. And then throughout the 20th century, hundreds and hundreds of Latina and Black um, people who were assigned female at birth were subject to compulsory sterilization, um, experimental birth control, medically unnecessary hysterectomies. And a lot of times these are done without informed consent. Um, and so medical students are still actually taught myths that are rooted in these eugenic history, in our eugenic history. Um, for example, there was a study that showed that like about, I think it was half of white medical trainees believed that black people's nerve endings were less sensitive, meaning that they don't feel pain the same way we do, uh, which is not true. And that really affects um, Black people who have surgery today and who have who go into the ER with a broken bone, if your doctor doesn't believe that you can feel pain, that affects the kind of treatment that you're able to receive. Um, they're also not trained to recognize uh, certain um, symptoms in the way that they present in patients with darker skin, um, especially, you know, um, personally, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and one of the, uh, like, diagnostic features uh, of that condition is to have translucent skin. And um, for me, that means that my white skin is like able, you're able to see my veins and things through that, but that shows up differently in patients of color. And that creates a really big barrier for them to get diagnosed. Um, there are other diagnostic indicators that are also um, not as accurate for Black, um, Indigenous, and uh, Latin patients. They pulse oximetry, um, which is used to evaluate breathing and has been used a lot in COVID to decide who gets a ventilator. Um, they're dangerously inaccurate for darker skin patients because they're reading through a light on your finger and, a lot, and they were made and tested on white patients. Um, so yeah, black, black and indigenous people of color have been left out of drug testing. Doctors can't recognize important disease features. Diagnostic indicators aren't ac accurate for them. Um, the, some of the tests that are used to determine who gets a kidney uh, transplant are, have different parameters for black and white patients. Um, so as a result of all of this, they've been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and other poor health outcomes and 
a lot of people of color have trouble trusting the medical system. And that's something that we could easily change by uh, educating students about these um, kind of medical myths that are still floating around in their textbooks and um, by uh, giving uh, black and indigenous people of color more opportunities to be doctors and to speak to doctors and having them, their doctors listen to um, their patients of color. Um, we also address gender identity um, because women and non-binary um, patients are frequently downplayed um, when they tell a doctor their symptoms and they're difficult for the doctor to figure out. It's very common to be told that um, their symptoms are kind of all in their head. And this is kind of rooted in the historical diagnosis of hysteria, which was actually included in our DSM until 1980. And it basically could be used to describe any set of symptoms that a woman was presenting that they couldn't figure out. I mean, they used it to diagnose seizures and bipolar disorder and brain tumors and so many different things that were just kind of written off as hysteria. And although we don't use that term anymore, I think that there are a lot of women who feel like they've been dismissed um, by their provider or told that something was all in their head and later on found out that it was not. Um, they're less likely to receive pain medicine and more likely to re be referred to psychologists in situations where men would undergo diagnostic testing. Doctors aren't always trained to recognize how serious disease presents in women. Um, a great example of this is um, heart attacks. Women are frequently sent home from the emergency room during a heart attack um, because their symptoms of cardiac arrest are different from men's and doctors don't always recognize them as a heart attack. Um, and until very recently, a lot of drug trials were primarily performed on men, um, meaning that we don't know how many common drugs affect women's bodies differently than they did in the test. Um, the, my favorite example of this is with a drug called flibanserin. And I, I might've pronounced that wrong, but essentially it is a drug used to treat female sexual dysfunction. And it was tested on 92% male subjects for female dis sexual dysfunction. Um, so if that doesn't kind of show that disparity within the drug trial system, I don't know what will. Um, it's a very huge problem and we need to know how drugs affect our bodies differently. Um, in some countries, women need permission from a male family member to receive medical care. They don't have that privilege of confidentiality. And finally, gender diverse patients. So if you are transgender or gender non-binary are frequently misgendered in the hospital and healthcare system. They often have to educate their providers about trans and non-binary health um, if they want to receive proper care. And their like dead names and wrong pronouns are listed in their chart over and over and over again. So we definitely need to make some changes in the way that we um, use medical charts, the way that we um, talk about diseases that affect female organs for uh, patients who are assigned female at birth, but might not necessarily identify as a woman. Um, there's a lot of really important changes that the medical system could make to improve 
care for people of a variety of gender identities. Um, and finally, we'd also like to address uh, weight bias in medicine. Uh, we've talked to a lot, a lot of patients who report that their health concerns are blamed on their weight um, without further investigation or that their treatment options are contingent on their weight loss. So um, if you need a certain surgery that, um, like let's say you need a knee replacement, if you can't get a knee replacement until you lose a lot of weight, but then you can't work out because you have an injured knee, it kind of creates this endless cycle of how are they gonna get the care that they need. Um, the medical field is actually the second most common place to experience uh, weight bias. Uh, it's been shown in a bunch of studies that doctors spend less time in appointments uh, with patients who are in larger bodies. Uh, they're more likely to be viewed as like non-compliant or like, you know, not listening uh, to their doctor. Um, med, med students, nurses, doctors have reported that um, their heavier patients discuss them, um, used a lot of really cruel language uh, to describe those patients. And they also face barriers to care just in the accessibility of their medical facilities. Um, there are hospital gowns that don't fit them, blood pressure cuffs that are too small, exam and x-ray tables that can't support their weight, um, inaccessible waiting room chairs, and all sorts of um, medical equipment that kind of creates, um, even if it, it creates a barrier, even if they can go to a different facility to find you know those resources that fit their body size um, it is difficult and humiliating to have to travel to a special place because you can't use the medical care that everybody else um, has access to so that creates a lot of shame and a lot of um, people who just don't want to um, go to the doctor and that creates a barrier to care in itself um, so all of those things together are what makes up standard of care. And we really want to show how all of these identities and circumstances work together to determine what kind of care somebody receives. Um, it's really important that we address intersectionality and how these things work together um, to determine somebody's access to healthcare and how different medical professionals hold these implicit biases toward different diagnoses, identities, and backgrounds. Beautifully put, Nancy. I, I love how the, the standard of care documentary is going to be diving into each of these themes. Very excited to see the final product of the documentary. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, how do we push for universal healthcare access for all in our communities across the board? Well, um, it really depends on where you live. Um, in countries like the United States, where we do have um, a healthcare infrastructure, I know that not all doctors will immediately hop on board and move their practice. Uh, and some, some places will stay privatized, but we have the healthcare infrastructure that if we wanted to, morally, we could provide healthcare to everyone who lives here. Um, in other countries, that is not the case. There's not enough healthcare providers. There's not enough hospitals. Um, and it's really important that we um, make sure that those countries have the resources that they need um, to invest in community healthcare and make sure that everybody has access um, to a clinic hospital setting where they can get the care that they need. 
Um, this isn't really something that we address too much in standard of care. Um, it's not a political film, uh, but I certainly believe in universal health care and I believe that healthcare is a human right. Um, and I, I think that something that we really need to focus on uh, in countries that aren't ready to transition to universal health care is training um, those uh, individuals in these communities. Um, programs like Doctors Without Borders are awesome, um, but it's really important that we invest in these communities, um, make sure that people who live there who want to be doctors and nurses and community health workers can, and that we provide them with the training so that eventually they can create self-sustaining healthcare models. Mm -hmm. And so in hearing these stories of patients, the chronically ill, of the marginalized, the most vulnerable, and others who've seen really the worst of the healthcare system, how did this make you feel, Nancy? this question a lot and I think that people really expect me to be very discouraged and that is definitely something I feel on a regular basis um you know every day I talk to people who want to share their story in this film and I think oh my gosh how could that have happened like mm -hmm. who was looking out for you and like just utterly shocked by um the atrocities that I've heard but I'm also really hopeful um, with this many people speaking out. Um, I'm not only interviewing patients in this film, I'm also interviewing doctors who are trying to address these biases within their own practice. And I think that by getting these stories out there, of course, um, our audience is everyone. I think it's really important that everybody knows about these things um, before they get to the hospital. Um, I don't think that everybody thinks about their access to healthcare until they are in a situation when they need it. Um, so it's definitely something that I want everyone to know, but I, I really do hope that doctors watch this film and use it to kind of change um, the way that they approach certain patients or the way that they limit their practice, um, whether that's in terms of insurance or income or location. Um, I, I, I hope that this does influence people to change their practice and make their health care more accessible beautifully put and I think that takes me into the next question I have for you Nancy is how is the documentary standard of care essentially serving humanity which is the mission statement of the PLN podcast wow I like that mission statement um I hope that it serves humanity by improving um healthcare access by talking about these things um you know uh I'm studying public interest communication uh, in college right now, which is learning how to create media and campaigns and communication strategies that go beyond raising awareness. Uh, and I do believe that raising awareness is the first step to fixing a problem. Um, well, because you can't fix a problem unless you know that it's there. And I really hope that like standard of care kind of shows people what's going on. But I also hope to offer some solutions. Um, I want standard of care to be a part of this larger conversation where, um, you know, doctors have patient symposiums and have uh, opportunities for patients to go speak at, to med students like I'm doing right now um, with your organization where uh, the next generation of doctors can really learn from patients about what they need. Um, doctors have a lot of power and they're serving people at their most vulnerable moments a lot of times like 
you know, your day at work is somebody else's worst day of their life. Um, so if we can start having these conversations and recognizing that, I really hope that um, standard of care can kind of facilitate this change in the medical system that we're hoping to make where uh, patient input is valued and um, respected and, and, and made an important part of the healthcare process. Exactly, Nancy. And and one thing I wanted to add in, in saying serving humanity, we want that humanistic patient-physician interaction to be there that we do not see our patients or people or the providers that we have that human aspect fundamentally at the end of the day. And I think standard of care is beautifully in exploring each of these themes is beautifully showing providers and health professionals that there's these problems on a multitude of levels, the social determinants of health on a multitude of levels, but at the core of what we do in providing healthcare and providing treatment and providing cures, um, we need to not forget that we are serving a human being in front of us and that human being is worthy of all and every human right that there is. Um, so that's how I see standards of, standard of care really uh, resonating with the mission statement of the PMED podcast. And not to make this too long for you, Nancy, but why don't you tell us what are some other forms in the field of healthcare you've worked on? Um, yeah, so um, my first feature length film that I created was a documentary about pediatric oncology. When I was in high school, I um, had the incredible opportunity to work with um, my local Children's Cancer Foundation. And um, when I uh, kind of started going there, you know, I was delivering meals to the hospital. I was, you know, chaperoning these like fun events for patients and their siblings. And very quickly into it, I realized, oh my gosh, this is so much different than I thought it was going to be. You know, I think that when people think of childhood cancer, they think one of two things. Um, they either picture that smiling, bald kid who's hugging a celebrity at Disney World, um, or they picture a child's funeral. And I realized that there just really wasn't an in-between. People really did either think this was just cute bald kid or um, depressing death sentence. And the realities of childhood cancer kind of fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And I really wanted to be able to show um, kind of the reality of what was going on um, for these kids. So I started filming Golden Truth uh, when I was 14 and I was um, diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome a few years after that. And a lot of people asked me, you know, once I uh, was kind of dealing with my own chronic illness, if I was going to include things about EDS in the in the golden truth. And I said no, and there's a, a very specific reason why, and that is that the golden truth was addressing these issues that were already in the media and these assumptions that people held. Um, and that was a very specific purpose. And I, I think and I hope that The Golden Truth accomplished that. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's free. And let me know if you agree with that statement. But um, when it comes to EDS and all of these other chronic illnesses, uh, that's not our problem. Our problem is not that there is 
the awareness is wrong it's that there is none nobody's heard of it and just nobody like nobody has thought about um some of the illnesses that i have was struggling with at the time and i was facing such a different set of barriers um to care and such a different um it's just such a different experience um to have childhood cancer which is well understood by medical professionals and it might not be well understood by the public but everybody knows what it is and understands kind of what you're going through um so so i did make that distinction um and that film premiered uh in orlando right after i graduated high school uh in 2017 and in 2020 it was put on amazon prime i'm very proud of that film um and uh i've also created a short film called is health care a human right and that was kind of using my personal experience to explain um, the US Affordable Care Act, which was a piece of legislation that expanded healthcare access to a lot of people. Um, for those of you who are listening from outside the states, um, we still don't have universal healthcare, but the ACA did make it uh, so that private insurance companies uh, could leave dependents like uh, so young people could stay on their parents' insurance until age 26. Um, people couldn't be penalized for their pre-existing conditions and it eliminated the lifetime cap on benefits. So this bill was really, really important. And after the 2016 election, um, we were not sure if that bill was going to stick around. So I made a documentary kind of explaining the importance of the ACA. And um, even today, uh, we have talks about healthcare and people talk about repealing the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I still bring this film up quite a bit to explain to people how important it is um, that this legislation stays uh, viable until we can accomplish universal healthcare here in the States. Um, and yeah, those are my healthcare focused films. It's funny because I've always said that I don't wanna be the healthcare girl, like I don't want all of my work to be centered around healthcare, but that's just kind of how it's worked out lately. And, um, you know, I think that in a lot of cases, I am the right person to tell this story because I do have this personal experience and I'm involved in the community. Um, so uh, maybe one day I will move to a different sphere of storytelling, but for now, um, this, is, this is my area and I'm very excited to be um, kind of serving my community uh, with this film. I think Nancy, you're doing a fantastic job and that personal experience really is something that motivates you, inspires you. You're in the in the depth of it. You're the most qualified person to be speaking and sharing your story, sharing the story of many others. I think you they can resonate with you and that resonation, that kind of personal story, that connection, I think is what makes standard of care really stand out and, and extremely powerful. Um, and if you don't mind telling the audience or those that will be listening, Nancy, what are some awards that you've received for your previous work? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, is Healthcare Human Right, uh, my short film about the Affordable Care Act, um, received the Mike Wallace Memorial Scholarship for Excellence in Journalism. Um, I got to fly to the News and Documentary Emmys and accepted on stage uh, in front of a lot of people who I really admire. So um, that was pretty cool. 
Uh, it also screened in Times Square as part of the All-American High School Film Festival because I, I did um, produce it in high school. Um, some of my non-healthcare related films have uh, won titles in the C-SPAN Student Cam uh, Film Festival. Uh, my documentary about creativity in public schools um, won first place at the San Diego International uh, Kids Film Festival. And uh, recently I, um, I'm graduating in August. I'm very excited uh, with my undergraduate degree. Uh, and I'm going to, I think I mentioned that I'm going to grad school uh, for public interest communication. And I'm very thankful that I won the Facebook journalism scholarship, uh, which will be helping me um, fund my education. So that was from the Association of LGBTQ uh, Journalists. That's amazing. Congratulations, Nancy. I'm so happy for you. Where can listeners follow Standard of Care? How can they get involved? Um, and what's next? Um, yeah, so you can follow Standard of Care on Instagram at Standard of Care or on Facebook. Our page is just called Standard of Care. And if you're interested in getting involved in the film, whether that's as a volunteer or a participant sharing your story, um, you can visit our website, which is www.standardofcare.film or email me at nancy at standardofcare.film. It's amazing. Thank you so much. I just want to thank you once again, Nancy, for coming onto the Pyramid podcast, for sharing your story, for speaking to us about providing us with such an educational and informative session um, that will really shape the way that medical students will perceive and see patients and future generations and to inform them. Um, and for all the healthcare professionals that are listening in, I hope they found some crucial information to take away from today. But thank you so much, Nancy, for being such an amazing uh, speaker and a guest to have on the Pyramid podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super thankful for opportunities to um, share this work. Thank you for listening to the Pyramid Podcast. It means the world to have a supportive audience from 50 plus countries and counting. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated. Feel free to share it with friends and family members. And more importantly, please follow Standard of Care. The platform aims to highlight the numerous disparities that demographics of people face when it comes to accessing healthcare and human rights. For further information, follow us on social media, or email us at pyramidfoundation at gmail.com. We here at Pyramid are excited to bring you new content, stories, and conversations week in and week out. We cannot wait to see you new and familiar faces here back each episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy.